This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Discussions abound today about the State of the Union, its place in the world, and the Founding Fathers' intentions. In his new book, Habits of Empire, A History of American Expansion, our guest today, Walter Nugent, argues that early acquisitions by the United States and the settlement of the Western frontier instilled in the American people a habit of empire building that has instrumentally shaped policy ever since. Nugent has taught history at the University of Notre Dame since 1984. He has published eight previous books and well over 100 essays and reviews on American and comparative history. Walter Nugent, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, How are you doing today? Doing fine. It's nice and cool here on the shores of Lake Michigan. Oh, very good. Very good. Do you have a view of the lake? I don't, and I have to walk about five blocks for that. Yeah? Do you do that often? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) except during the winter when that's not ideal here. Does it get really icy there? It It does indeed. Yeah. Right. Oh oh my goodness. Uh, Then I think of Southern California. (laughs) Have you ever spent, have you spent much time in Southern California? I have been very fortunate in having had, uh, three gigs of almost six to eight months at the Huntington Library in San Marino. And, uh, it's a wonderful place and great place to be in the winter. Now, now, what do you do at the Huntington? Uh, research, uh, in part, books like this. Uh, I uh, drew on material at the Huntington, particularly for uh, the Spanish uh, period in California history, uh-huh. and uh, or also Oregon. There's a, a good body of stuff on the acquisition of Oregon, also in the 1840s, of course. Uh, it's an enormously rich library in Western Americana. I used it before in a previous book that I did called Into the West, which was on the peopling of the Western United States. And the Huntington was marvelous. My wife also had a fellowship there. Um, oh gosh, it's almost 20 years now, I think. So we, we are very fond of the place and of uh, the Southland. Yeah, the Pasadena area is beautiful. Yeah. Right up against the foothills there. Right. Well, now, in your new book, Habits of Empire, before we get started, what do you mean by habits of empire? Uh, The uh, consistency with which we have had an expansionist outlook uh, and also an ideology of expansion, which goes back at least to Thomas Jefferson. He he may be our greatest theoretician of expansion in in that famous phrase of his Empire for Liberty, which Mm -hmm. appears in a letter he wrote to uh, Madison. Uh, right after Madison became president, which I use as the epigraph for the book. Uh, it, it, it can be traced back into the colonial period, but uh, I don't go really back that far. Uh, I start with the settlement after the Revolutionary War uh, in 1782-83, the, the peace treaty with Britain, uh, whereby we got an enormous chunk of territory. People don't think much about this, but it was our first great acquisition, Trans-Appalachia, between the eastern chain of mountains and the Mississippi. Uh, Franklin was, of course, one of the negotiators of that treaty, and uh, he was not only a brilliant man but a very stubborn one and uh, managed to acquire that area even though we never conquered it and we as yet had not settled it. Uh, and then we kept on going. Well, besides uh, Canada, was that the last great chunk of land that the, the Brits laid claim to? Uh, in North America, uh, 
they had had Florida, or the Floridas actually, East and West Florida, for 20 years after the peace settlement in 1763, after the Seven Years' War. But they agreed to turn that back over to Spain at that point. So uh, Canada, yeah, that, that's, that was British North America mm-hmm. uh, as of that time. Uh, but Canada largely consisted, though, of what is now Quebec and uh, uh, the Maritimes, uh, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia. Uh, there, as yet at that point, I mean, we're talking 1782-83. There were very few English-speaking Canadians uh, west of Quebec. There soon were along the St. Lawrence. The, the loyalists from the American Revolution, many of them refugees from New York State, New England, and so on, uh, who were, of course, not very fond of the new United States because the uh, rebellious Americans had, uh, as they saw it, deprived them of property and. Uh, 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 really, their their lifestyle. Uh, Western Canada was unsettled. There's fur trade, a few fur traders out there, but as of that point, uh, very few of them even at, uh, uh, west of the Great Lakes. So yeah, Britain uh, uh, consist uh, British possessions in North America consisted of uh, present Quebec, uh, which they had taken over uh, in 1763 from France. And uh, not a whole lot else, mm-hmm. really. Now, now, when we acquired that land, were we already thinking of expansion, or was this just a single incident here? Uh, the Trans-Appalachia acquisition of 1782-83, uh, as I said a minute ago, did not as yet involve much settlement, but there was plenty of uh, uh, potential settlement in the eyes of Franklin, and his colleague John Jay, not so much John Adams, the third member of the negotiating team, uh, but something I, I, I should point out here, that there, there had been considerable interest in the Ohio Valley and in Kentucky as far back as the late 1740s on the part of, uh, of investors, speculators in uh, Philadelphia and in some other places, New York included, uh, they were they, they had their eyes on on land beyond the mountains. They had no good way to get it as yet that early. Uh, but settlement proceeded uh, strangely enough during the Revolutionary War. There were a lot of people pouring in. Lot, by a lot, I mean ten to twenty, to maybe thirty thousand pouring into Kentucky through the Cumberland Gap, and people beginning to go down the Ohio. But uh, it was it was the potential that rather than the actual settlement that was really attractive. Uh, at the moment of the peace treaty. And, of course, without it, we would never have been in a position to accept the incredible offer that Napoleon made in 1803 to sell us uh, Louisiana. So one thing led to another. We're speaking with Walter Nugent. The book is Habits of Empire, a History of American Expansion. Now, as far as displacing of Native peoples, did we have any mindset as far as that uh, before that even began? Or was this just something that naturally developed? We're moving in, they're moving out. Right. Um, well, uh, I think it's traceable. The, the displacement, or as it later was called, removal of the native peoples, it's traceable all the way back to the very first English settlements. Um, uh, at Jamestown, the, the uh, battles that developed with the Powhatans uh, in Massachusetts, uh, the, uh, the, the very early war in the, in the late 1630s with the Pequots, um, it, 
it goes back an awfully long way. Uh, there is some thinking uh, that part that the model for this, the, uh, the English uh, attitude and policy toward Native Americans, uh, was copied from their rather the English rather recent experience in the subjugation of the Irish in Elizabethan times and Cromwellian times, uh, whereby they considered themselves to be civilized and they considered the Irish to be uncivil or just plain savage. And that carried over in Massachusetts and Virginia. I was just, just reading an excellent book by uh, J.H. Eliot, Sir John Eliot, um, comparing the empires of the Atlantic world, Britain and Spain and America, uh, in this period, and he makes that point, as do others. Uh, when it got to the time of Jefferson, however, the uh, idea of displacing in Indians was rather urgent because there were so many settlers pouring into areas uh, where Native Americans had traditionally lived, uh, the old Northwest, Mississippi Valley, and so on. And uh, Jefferson developed this into a, a theory which has been called Jeffersonian philanthropy. We may have our doubts about how philanthropic it really was. But uh, the notion was that uh, whenever there was contact between whites and Indians, the Indians always lost. Uh, and they needed time, really, to uh, raise their level of civilization to the white level of civilization. The way to do that was to put them out of harm's way. Uh, and where would they go out of harm's way? Uh, well, after the Louisiana Purchase, somewhere out into the great unknown, uh, the great empty spaces, uh, which turned out to be Kansas and Oklahoma. They weren't empty at all, of course. There were already other Indians there. But uh, that was the notion. It, the the philanthropic aspect seemed to dovetail rather suspiciously with the land-grabbing uh, aspect of it. I'm, I'm going to dive into a, what's probably a pretty tangled story here, which is, did, do we, did, did we as Americans during that period of time, the early uh, development of the country, did we look at this as truly as an expansion of an empire, or did we look at it as we have later come to be known it as manifest destiny? And the second part of this is when when we when we were moving into these areas with the Native Amer Native Americans, because we had purchased the land, did that somehow raise the level of what we assumed was a legitimate right to the land? So uh, are, are those two related? Sure. Um. Yeah, we had legal cover yeah. uh, in the sense of treaties, and up until, um, trying to think of pretty precise date, really, uh, up until the presidency of U.S. Grant, and we're talking there 1869, 1870, up until then the federal government had taken considerable pains to uh, justify or legitimize, a better word, uh, the takeover of previously Indian-held lands. Uh, through treaties. Uh, part of the problem was to find uh, some Indian leader in any given case who... Wouldn't be willing to sign on. Well, who not only would be willing to, but uh, who had the right to. Uh, we were always looking for oh, kings or uh, people with credentials uh, that we could deal with. And in many cases, tribal organizations simply did not uh, produce such people. It just it wasn't structured that way. But we insisted in every case that it was. So there's treaty after treaty. Um, uh, 
from the beginning of the Republic, really down to the uh, so-called peace policy of Grant, uh, uh, whereby we uh, we try to legitimate our uh, takeover of lands or the removal of the Indians in the 1830s and 40s under Jackson and his successors. Uh, as for the idea, you, I think the first part of your question about empire. Yeah, did we ever did the, at that time? Did we look at ourselves as an expanding empire? I know you mentioned uh, Jefferson early in the conversation right. about the empire of liberty, but was that was that something that infused our the the thought process of the people making these these moves? Was it was it or was this a cover? <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, the, the the term that Jefferson the phrase that Jefferson came up with Empire for Liberty really is an oxymoron, mm-hmm. but uh, we have lived with it, and uh, mm-hmm. Jefferson and his successors, which would be Madison, Monroe, down through Jackson, uh, lived with it and and saw nothing really wrong with it. Uh, expansion was a natural thing. We had, in fact, in in the views of many people, uh, a duty to expand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Providence had put us here. And it was up to us to make the best use out of the land, which obviously was better than the kind of use the Indians were uh, were, were putting it to. Uh, it was our job to do this. The, the, the famous two words, manifest destiny, didn't come along until 1845, but they expressed the idea so well mm-hmm. uh, that it, it sort of shows that it was not a new idea. Uh, it was just a, a new and really rather brilliant way of stating it. Mm-hmm. Now, you divided American imperialism imperialism into three phases. We're, we've been talking about continental empire. There's also offshore empire, and then the final one, global or virtual empire. Can we talk a little bit about uh, the offshore empire? Yeah, that, sure. that was in about 1930s or so is when we started thinking more that way? Well, that's about really when it winds up. Okay. Uh, it, I, I see a continuity. Okay. Of, of these three things. First, we we took over the continent from Atlantic to Pacific, not all, but not Mexico, not Canada, but all the way across to the Pacific, and that was pretty. That was completed uh, pretty much after the Mexican War with the sort of P.S. of the Gadsden Purchase, Southern New Mexico and Southern Arizona in 1853-54. That completed, but, but uh, we almost immediately kept on going across the Pacific. Uh, the acquisition of a whole lot of little atolls uh, and islands in the Pacific called the Guano Islands. That's the 1850s. And then the Civil War puts uh, a quietus on things, uh, understandably, for a while. But immediately after that, the Secretary of State, William Henry Seward, Secretary for Lincoln and then Andrew Johnson, uh, uh, negotiated the famous Purchase of Alaska. Uh, and we we kept on going across the Pacific in the late 19th century, uh, culminating in the acquisitions after the Spanish-American War of Guam and, uh, more importantly, the Philippines. Uh, and, and also as a consequence of the Spanish-American War, an expansion around the Caribbean. Uh, there's a lot to be said on that, and I won't try to yeah. summarize it right now. But but that's that's offshore. The the difference between the main there are two main differences between. Uh, what I call Empire II from the 1850s to down to the 1930s, and the Continental Empire that preceded it. One is that uh, we never really uh, tried to settle uh, the offshore empire with our own people. Uh, it, you could say Hawaii, I suppose, uh, but settlement was not the major motivation, whereas it really was in the 
continental uh, empire. Uh, uh, the other thing is that there was a, a very definite commercial spin put onto the offshore acquisitions. Uh, Seward was a, uh, maybe the next great theoretician of empire after Jefferson, the Jeffersonian idea uh, prevailed really all the way through the 1840s, but Seward puts a commercial emphasis on it. He, he gave a speech well before he was Secretary of State saying that the empire of the world is the commerce of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he really believed, he, he was he was omnivorous. He would have yeah. taken Greenland and Iceland and everything else that was up for, he thought, for grabs at that point. But the idea was the expansion of American commerce, and which meant the well-being of the United States. Re- re- refresh my memory. We bought Alaska from the Russians? Yes, okay. Alaska from the Russians. Right. It was it was probably the cleanest deal we ever made. Okay. Uh, the Russians were interested in selling. We were interested in buying. Uh, they regarded Russian America, as they called it, as, as indefensible, and they were scared the British would come in and take it over, and they right. needed British support in, uh, in, uh, in their struggles against the Ottoman Empire around the Black Sea. So it was a good deal for them. Not, not to put you on the spot, but can you think of another country in the world uh, on the scale of the United States that has a non-contiguous land mass as the large... Like Alaska, a situation like that is there is there another country that has something a piece of its country that is so far removed from the the body of the country like we do with right. Alaska right um, yeah i I think uh, some analogous cases they're they're not precise because the legalities differ a little bit, but the um, uh, and I don't, I don't think of one offhand right now, but yeah. the, the British Empire and the French Empire prior to, yeah. uh, say, 1954 when they lost Vietnam, right. uh, they, they cons- the French particularly considered uh, representatives from their colonies as really French people. Well, Algiers would be an example for the French. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah they, they, the colonies were part of, quote, oh. metropolitan okay. France, unquote. I don't want to get too far off on that. I was just kind of thinking uh, as far as... Uh, it is. It is an example. I guess you could say it is. It highlights an empire. It certainly is an is one characteristic of empire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now let's move into the uh, the global virtual empire. Okay. The third stage. What differentiates it from the offshore empire that we've been talking about? Uh, well, the extent of it. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, probably also the highly military character of it. Uh, it, it really gets going right after uh, the end of the Second World War, when, when George Kennan of the State Department uh, proposed a policy which came to be called containment. Uh, and it was the, really the blueprint for the Truman administration and, and the Eisenhower administration and everybody since uh, to, to really defend ourselves against the Soviet Union. But uh, uh, it, it became more than that. We, we uh, produced a, or, or uh, contracted a very elaborate treaty structure beginning with NATO, and we still have it, a lot of it anyway. Uh, uh, and it has taken on a considerably military character, uh, particularly after the collapse of the wall in 89 and the collapse of the Soviet Union itself in 91. Uh, we have over 700 military bases around the world, and there's discussion right now what going to happen in Iraq? Are we going to get to stay there, or are we going to come out, or what? Uh, it's it's it, it's part of the continuity that really goes back an awful long way, I think. Okay, now, 
would you say that this this empire of ours is inbred? That there was nowhere for us to go except to be in a place like Iraq at this point in our history? Well, nothing is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I personally don't regard the uh, Iraq uh, adventure or misadventure as having an inevitability about it. Um, likewise with Vietnam, but but uh, we we it was one way of manifesting. Uh, the expansive spirit that we have had, I maintain, since the beginning. There is a, someone asked me, if, was there ever going to be another empire, an empire four? And uh, one thing that came to mind was a segment that was on 60 Minutes back in April, early May, uh, which was about something I wasn't aware of, which was uh, NASA uh, getting money together for another moonshot and then to go on from the moon to Mars. And uh, it, this puzzles me. Uh, nobody seemed to be asking why. Uh, Empire One was a matter of getting land and farming it. You're not going to do that on Mars. You're not going to get John Deere's up there. Uh, Empire Two, with its commercial thrust, uh, there's nobody to trade with up there. Uh, Empire Three, uh, there's no we're not there's no threat uh, uh, from Martians or anybody. So it, it just puzzles me. It's almost a knee jerk. Uh, attitude toward just expanding wherever it's possible. Do, do you see this as one more uh, development in the militarization of outer space? And it, we're, by do, doing what we're doing, we we continue to uh, assert our dominance in, in uh, sort of economic terms. In the same way the British were able to control empire by controlling the sea, the next great sea, if you will, is outer space, and we're, this is a, one part of that process. Well, I think it's it's a good analogy. Sure, yeah, we have the, or we can put together the technological capability of doing that. Yeah, I think that's not a bad analogy. Now, I want I want one other thing uh, about Iraq, we've, because it does seem like we've, in my opinion, we seem to be running out of uh, steam, or running out of our ability to project uh, force around the world uh, without the consequences of it coming back to to be dire for us. And I look at Iraq in in an extreme sense as akin to Napoleon uh, in, in Russia um, mm-hmm. in terms of what it's doing to our military and into our ability to project military power. Do you see this, if you agree with that analogy, do you see this as an opportunity for us to really reassess where we are as an empire and as a republic? Uh, it, it, uh, it could work out that way. That might be a silver lining. The, the case is not unique. I mean, quagmires have existed for a long time. Uh, uh, us in Vietnam, the the Soviets in Afghanistan, and the recent examples, and of course, uh, the disaster that Napoleon suffered in in Russia. Yeah, in in uh, in the early 19th century. Yeah. Uh, yeah, quagmires are quagmires, and and maybe we will wake up to this. We, however, did not really absorb the lesson of Vietnam, perhaps as we might have. I should point out, however, so your listeners know this, this my book is not about Iraq. I hardly right. mention Iraq. Right, right. Uh, it is about, uh, uh, well, two-thirds of it on the pre-1850 period when we developed what I maintain is this rather uh, strange habit of, of, of building empires. Well, let, let's remind our listeners once again that the book is Habits of Empire, uh, A History of American Expansion. Uh, before we let you go, I have... One question. No, I know we're not that. Your book isn't about Iraq and, and not so much about this election either. But if you had the ear of the presidential candidates right now, from what you've learned about empire, 
Is there anything in particular you'd say to them, any point that you'd want to drive across from, from the history of this country? Uh, that's a, a great question. Um, I'm sure I will never have the opportunity to do that. But, uh, you never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> um, I, would, I guess I would say, uh, look, we have had this tendency toward expansion for a long time. Uh, and like any habit that anybody or any country's had for a long time, it's not easy to break it. Therefore, we should be very, very careful about where we go and uh, what forces we employ and whether uh, doing anything of that kind, external expansion, really diverts resources that we ought to be using at home more mm -hmm. productively. Well, the book is Habits of Empire. We've been speaking with Walter Nugent. Walter, thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. I'm delighted. Thank you very much. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week... I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.